good morning. <coughs> Is this on? Is it on? Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. My name's Kathy Wells. Um, I'm part of the Old Bramble Home Group. And Old Bramble happens to be the name of the street that Brad and Allison live on, but we're all old anyway, except that now we've got a bunch of young people in it. So it's real confusing. But anyway, a lot of our old people don't like to be called old, but I'm just glad to be old and to still be here. So anyway, but we have a, an awesome home group. And again, another plug for home groups. If you're not in one, it's what is the icing on the cake. So you need to find one. So... Um, before I begin with our guest, take a look at the people in the bulletin that do need your prayers. Those are, some are ongoing, some are new, but um, it's a good thing to put our bulletin where we can see it during the week so it reminds us that we do need to keep, people, keep each other lifted up in prayer. But first of all, this morning I'd like to uh, welcome Ricky Mill. Um, a lot of you don't know, uh, new people don't know, so we're going to give a little overview of what Ricky's ministry is and his ties here to Grace. So uh, first of all, just let the pit folks know, especially those that are new here, what your ties to Grace are. Well, a number of years ago, um, 10 families in the Bowie's Creek area uh, began to meet together and talk with one another and pray about the possibility of starting a new church in this community. And so somehow, I don't even remember exactly how, uh, my name was given to them as someone that might help them in that process. And so I began to come to Bowie's Creek and meet with those families, and we did some Bible studies, and then that turned into a a worship experience. And then we began a process that lasted, I think, a couple of years, uh, trying to put together the bylaws and the Constitution so we could have a, a new congregation here in the community. Now, that might sound like a simple process, but uh, the problem was we had several law school uh, faculty members in that group, and uh, when you get to technical documents, we wordsmith that, <laughs> those documents for a couple of years trying to make sure that it said precisely what we wanted to say as this church was founded. So uh, that was a wonderful process. We had a retired Baptist pastor. We had a missionary. We had... Jim McLaughlin and some others that uh, had uh, had a legal background. So we, we met and prayed and wrestled over that process and came up with, uh, with the, the documents that are the foundation of this church. And then we had to enter into a, a pastor search process. And so we continued to meet and pray, and we went through a number of applicants that uh, were interested in becoming the pastor of this new church. And somewhere along the, along the way, uh, someone brought up the name of Brad Talley. And, uh, you know, would, would anyone have any idea if he was interested? And so uh, we all kind of shrugged our shoulders. I didn't know Brad at the time, and someone contacted him from the group. And it turned out that he, in fact, had been interested, very interested, and had for quite some time felt like maybe God would have him to become the pastor of this church. But he had decided before the Lord that that wasn't something he was going to initiate. He was going to wait for us to contact him if it was the Lord's plan. And so uh, I don't know if we were just slow or, or what, but we finally, we finally did uh, contact Brad, and he uh, indicated that he would very much like to be considered. And so once that process started, it was a quick and easy and unanimous sense that God was uh, leading us to invite him to be the first pastor of this church. And so that was kind of my role. I just was part of a group that was going through that process to try to uh, 
to follow God's leading of those families to establish a congregation here. And aren't we glad? Amen. Um, I want you to tell us a little bit about Barnabas Ministries. Okay, um, I just uh, retired uh, from being one of the pastors at Providence Baptist Church in Raleigh, and uh, I, I love to uh, just sit with people and listen. That's what I enjoy doing. And so I, I put in place uh, Barnabas Ministries of the Triangle uh, to offer me the opportunity to offer pastoral counseling to folks in the area who um, God would send my way. And uh, Barnabas is one of my heroes in the New Testament. He was a man whose, whose life was characterized by encouragement, and that's the thing that I've asked the Lord to enable me to do is just be an encouragement to men and women and young folks that I have a chance to, uh, to meet and to serve. And so I started Barnabas Ministries of the Triangle, and it's uh, basically just me. It's not a, a big, uh, you know, organization, <laughs> but I show up uh, to just meet with folks and, and try to serve them in the best way that I can. I offer uh, my counseling uh, on a donation basis. And there are a number of folks for a variety of reasons who can't afford counseling. Uh, and so I offer to meet with those folks and do meet with a number of people. And it's because of uh, Grace Community Church and some individuals that are friends of mine who support that ministry financially that I'm able to offer my time to folks that can't afford to uh, compensate me for that. Uh, there are others who do give donations towards the ministry, so... It's just a great privilege for me to, uh, to be here this morning and to say thank you as a congregation because when I meet with folks, it's, uh, it's your generous investment in Barnabas Ministries that enables me to do that. And as someone who has taken advantage of his counseling uh, services, I would <clears throat> recommend him to you. Um, his gentle spirit and the way he speaks, he just lets the Lord speak through him and everything that he has to say comes straight from him. And so... When you do leave his office, you feel um, a sense of peace about whatever you've gone in to talk to him. There's no judgment. There's just a, um, of course, in my case, I did most of the talk, and he just went like this a lot. But anyway. Are you amazed? That... <laughs> but it was nice. Thank you. All right. How can we pray for you? Well, I think uh, pray that, uh, and, and there's a little uh, paragraph in your bulletins this morning, and whoever put that together, that would be basically what I would ask you to pray for. But I, I really want to be available to the folks that God would have me to sit down and serve. Uh, pray, too, that God would protect uh, my life, my character, my testimony. Uh, in light of 32 million people being on a on an email list, and uh, many of those in that Ashley Madison uh, scandal were pastors and uh, seminary professors and Christian workers. And uh, my nature is no different than the nature of any of those folks. And so I, I, I covet prayer that God would keep me faithful and, and pure and honoring to him. And then that I would just be a, a faithful grandfather and husband and and father to my family and servant to the Lord would be the main areas. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with so many different things. Everybody here has something different that need a need to be met. Some of us just need a peace, joy, 
Uh, we need leading guidance. But we thank you so much for Ricky and his ministry and how it ministers to his community and, and past that, and that you have called him to share what you want for all of us through the spoken word. We just ask you all the things that he mentioned, that you do keep him whole and pure, and we're in a world now that just forces us to look places we don't want to look, hear things we don't want to hear, and see things we don't want to see. So do that for all of us. We thank you so much for your presence in this place. We thank you that you did send Brad Talley to Grace Community, and that all of us here have been able to flourish under his teaching. We thank you for all the staff here at Grace and all the elders and deacons and the things that they do and to keep this place where you want it to be. We ask you now to take the offerings that are given to you, that you will use them to, that we will use them to your glory, and that blessings will come from that. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. Thank you so much for coming on this day. You will no doubt have figured out by now that college football season has begun in earnest. And NFL is just days away from meaningless football. I'm thinking about petitioning, um, I mean for meaningful Football, yeah, sorry about that. I, I'm thinking about petitioning the University of North Carolina to see if they can't get up a football team over there. I'm a Tar Heel fan, a little disappointed. Campbell had a big win, right? Thursday night, yeah, all right, that's good. I don't think there were any other teams in the area that mean anything that we need to talk about. <laughs> like I said, I don't think there are any other teams in the area. You know, uh, at this time of year, Allison calls herself, as many of you ladies do, probably a football widow. Um, she tries to go to a game, one game a year with me, and she'll sit down on the couch and give it the old college try, pun intended. But you know, one of the big problems that Allison has about football, she doesn't understand the game. Just makes no sense to her. It's like me when I'm in Australia trying to figure out rugby, rugby union, Australian rules football, I don't have any idea what's going on. My brother-in-law tries to explain it to me, but when he's over here, I'm trying to tell him the rules of American football. And it's just, if you don't understand, you're missing something if you don't know the rules of the game. You know, it's kind of like that in society, isn't it? In, in our world. It's like, you don't get the rules of society. They're always changing. I mean, you'll say something and everybody will go, <gasps> I can't believe you said that. And you're like, what? What, what did I say? And, and you may think, well, that'll never happen to me. It will happen to you. I promise you the rules will change sooner or later. You'll no, not know what happened. On a more personal level, imagine uh, your family. You, you have a set of rules, right? All families have rules. Your room has to be clean before you go outside or I, I don't care what your room looks like as long as the front room is, is situated so that people can come in. So as long as the front room is, is clean. Sometimes one person in the family will assume that the rules have been relaxed. And then it's like, uh, oh, guess what? That, that rule is still in place. And you're like, hmm. 
Or sometimes you look at your own family's rules and you look at other families' rules and you say, it's just not fair. I mean, my friends get to do homework before they go to bed, but I've got to do it as soon as I get home from school. I want to, while there's still light outside, I want to go out and play. Do you remember... I, I rec- I, there's probably nobody here, but just in case. Do you remember getting into big trouble when you were a kid? Anybody remember getting into Of course, we all at some point got into big trouble. And, and you know what's just as uncomfortable? When a brother or a sister gets into big trouble. And there's all this tension in the family. Hopefully your family handled it with love. Hopefully nobody was disowned. And hopefully the offending member... Family member changed his or her ways, both for the benefit of the family, not to mention his own profit. Well, this series about family life, a place in the family that was begun in January is going to come to an end next week when we talk about relationships and family gatherings in home groups. That text, by the way, next week is going to be taken from Hebrews And it's sort of a segue into the next series, Hebrews 10, we're going to be looking at uh, as we talk about the importance of gathering together in small groups as well as the large group. Today, we're going to think about a topic that is most unpleasant, but absolutely necessary. It's the issue of what to do when someone not only breaks the family rules, but wants to continue living in opposition to what the family has said, this is the way we have to live, and act like everything is just okay. You know how it is, like your 16-year-old brother pulls out a cigarette, you know, and says, hey, I'm going to smoke, you're just going to have to deal with it. you got to live with it, I'm going to smoke. It's important to remember when we think about family rules, church family rules, to recognize that none of us wrote these rules. God wrote the rules. Now, I've talked a lot about rules, and that sounds a lot like law. Believe me, there'll be a lot said about grace today. That's the only reason any of us stand. The words church discipline evoke all kinds of emotions, with discomfort being usually the most prominent emotion. Earlier, we talked about living in a society where the rules are constantly changing. One of the cultural norms, one of the cultural rules that almost everybody gets is, how dare you judge me? How dare you say that I'm an immoral person because I believe so-and-so or I live in such-and-such a way? How dare you? Of course, when you say, wait, wait, look, look, I'm just saying that my understanding of morality is different. Typically, you don't get any more grace then someone thinks you're giving to them. Uh, When they think you're just a strict, mean-spirited, mean-hearted person. So what is the standard for right and wrong? I mean, what if my family doesn't see it the way your family sees it? That happens occasionally, doesn't it? All the time. I mean, which family is right? As a church, we are God's family. And this family is designed to be the most loving family imaginable, accepting, welcoming. But sometimes love requires discipline. And look, if if you're gathered around your table and your mom has the rule, no elbows on the table, 
you know, your friend may come in and put the elbows on the table and she's going to say nothing because it's another family coming in. You might say, hey, hey, we're not allowed to have that. And your mom will say, oh, it's okay, it's okay. That, this is our family rule. So <clears throat> it's, it's important that we understand what it is, how it is that God has designed our family to live. And sometimes within the family... Love requires discipline. Now, we're, we're barely going to touch on this topic. I'm, I'm so grateful that Ricky Mill was here this, is here this morning and that he shared the things that he shared. Every time I see Ricky, my spirit just goes to, to peace mode. It does. It's just, that's, again, what Kathy was sharing. A number of people that I've known over the years uh, have gone to Ricky about any number of things. Sometimes it's just getting perspective. Look... I don't have time. I, as a pastor, I don't have time to do all of the counseling that, that, that would be nice to do. It, it's great to have a resource like Ricky, who every single time anybody's gone to him has been very positive about the experience. Ricky has a great way of, of, of saying, look, this is sin, and you need to stop this. But loving and gracious, lovingly and graciously helping you to do that. Finding ways to help you to do that. So as we think about church discipline, it needs to be done with the same spirit. Lovingly helping some people. You know, people who are, are finding them the wrong ways uh, in, in the family and they're moving outside of the, the, the family structure. Find ways to lovingly bring them back in. But if not, then we have to go to the next step. Our text today is 1 Corinthians 5. The entire chapter. I'm going to read the chapter and then give a little bit of explanation of the meaning before listing several biblical principles about church discipline. Now, I'm I, I just going to tell you, there are a few places in 1 Corinthians 5 where I'm going to say, and the meaning is, I don't know. I mean, here's a possibility, here's a possibility. You can say, oh, this is the meaning, but there are going to be people equally as skilled at understanding scripture and, and studying that would say, no, no, I think the meaning is over here. It's, it's just not as clear in some places as we want to want it to be, but it gets in a direction that we can all understand. So, 1 Corinthians 5, a complicated text, but even if we don't understand Paul's fully full meaning, if we don't understand his meaning perfectly, we can understand much about the heart of God for individuals and for the church. So, as is our custom, I'll ask you to stand as we read 1 Corinthians 5. I'm just going to actually read the first five verses for now. And then we'll pray and get at trying to make sense of it. <clears throat> it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For although absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our... My spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, these are strong words. These are uh, serious words with major implications. Pray that you will give us not only understanding of what you mean, but understanding of how we are to conduct ourselves as a group of believers who bear the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for bringing us into the family. We thank you, Father, Son, Spirit, for the incredible plan, for the wonderful sacrifice and the beautiful drawing and convicting and enabling us to believe. We thank you for that. Now, may we live as your people and may we get some sense of an understanding of what it means when it's not easy because of activity in the body. So, Lord, speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Does it strike anything strike you specifically when Paul says that uh, the church was tolerating behavior that even society didn't tolerate? Do you remember where we are? Where we've been in this past month in Corinth? This Corinth could have qualified for the title of sin city of the Roman Empire. Now, I'm sure there were equally debauched cities in the empire, but we know about Corinth. It was a wicked, wicked place. And wouldn't you know it, the church is tolerating behavior that even the world finds despicable. A man is living with his stepmother, who's probably just a little older than he is. Most men married women that were much younger than them in that day. And so this... this man who is offending is living with his stepmother. Paul did not broach the subject gently. I mean, he just said, you arrogant bunch of bums! What are you doing? Interesting, isn't it, that Paul called not the man, but the church members arrogant for allowing this behavior to exist in the body. Now, clearly, the implication is that this man is arrogant, but he's calling even the members who allow it to happen to be arrogant. Paul pronounced a quick verdict Get him out the next time you are together. He said nothing about the woman, and so we would have to assume that either one, She's not a believer uh, or, or to a member, both being the same, essentially. She's not a member. She's not a believer. So Paul says, we have no jurisdiction over this lady. But the man is a practicing member, a professing, confessing believer of Jesus Christ. And so you can't allow this to go on. So the church has no spiritual authority over the woman, but they do have spiritual authority over the people in the church, have spiritual authority over the woman. Uh, he doesn't put, by the way, Paul does not put the responsibility solely on the leaders. Should the leaders take the lead? Yeah, they should. But the responsibility is that of the entire congregation. In 2 Corinthians 2, where Paul is referring to another church discipline matter that occurred in the past, and probably not this one, 
where he says, hey, the discipline administered created this beautiful spirit of repentance. I want you to bring this person back into the fellowship. Probably not the same guy talked about in 1 Corinthians 5. There was another letter in between the two Corinthians that is lost. We don't have it. But when he was talking in 2 Corinthians 2, he said that a majority of the members had disciplined the individual. Look, I love it when any decision that we make is unanimous. But Paul said, the majority of you decided that this is a a step that needs to be taken. Verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 5 is quite difficult. You are to deliver. And you know what? I've read through this book. I can't tell you how many times. If you had asked me before this week, what did Paul say about that man? I would have said, I have delivered him over to Satan, that Paul said that. But he says, you, congregation, are to deliver, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a remarkable verse on so many Levels. Does he mean that God's will is going to be accomplished because this man will be killed? I don't think that's what he means. It, it could mean that. Hand him over. Let Satan have his work with him. I mean, later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, we'll be there today, although we won't read this part. He says that some of you are sick and some have even died because of your abuse of the Lord's table. So he's not saying... God's going to kill this man and he's going to use Satan to do it. Probably not, although it's possible. Most modern scholars tend to think that Paul is saying that Satan will sift the man. Much like Jesus said to Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. He wants you and he's going to have you, but in the end, I'm going to do a beautiful thing in your life. Essentially is what Jesus said to Peter. And perhaps this is exactly what Paul is saying. Most, again, modern scholars think that when, when, when Paul says the destruction of the flesh, he's talking about the old man. Certainly the Greek word sarx is the one that is used almost always. It's rarely used in a positive sense. It's almost always talking about the old nature, the old man that we have. How would this be accomplished that Satan would batter him around and then maybe his spirit, he'd he'd learn his lesson and his spirit would take over and he would live as he's supposed to? I don't know. I'm not sure. Either way, it is remarkable that Paul fully expects this man to be saved in the day of the Lord, in the day of judgment. I've been stunned as I've been going through 1 Corinthians, like I say, this past month. To see the things that Paul says about them. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1 he says. You're going to be standing blameless before the Lord. And then he goes into a 15-16 chapter rebuke of the Corinthians. Almost everything they did was fleshly in nature. And yet he says. Satan do your best. You'll not get his soul if he belongs to you. But the problem was he belonged to the Lord. And he was living fully like He belonged to Satan. So what does it mean to be removed from the church? Once again, Scripture is not as clear as we would like for it to be. I think 
if you will, there is a lot of intentional ambiguity in Scripture. The truth never changes, but the truth is fluid enough to transcend all generations, all cultures, and even all personalities. And when God leaves something a little bit vague, He expects us to use all of our best understanding and biblical principles and to pray and to seek His wisdom and to recognize how serious this is, but to be to enter into it with great care. In Matthew 18, which we're going to examine in just a few moments, Jesus says to treat one who is put out of the church as a Gentile and as a tax collector or as an unbeliever. In 2 Thessalonians 3, when church discipline is administered, by the way, for laziness, can you believe that? Church discipline is administered for laziness, but it's not exactly what you think. It was a group of people who were saying, well, the Lord is going to take care of me. It would be wrong for me to work um, and because I believe God has called me to not work and to let me just be a picture of the ways that God takes care of us. And then the next thing you know, I'm saying, Ted McKinney, I believe the Lord has called you to help meet my needs. Could you have a steak and eggs and you know, all that stuff over at my house? In a certain, that's the kind of... And, and people have all kinds of crazy ideas about what it means to be a Christian. So that's what Paul was doing. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, when, when, when church discipline is administered, when he called for that, the offending party was to be treated as a brother. D- encourage him. You, you've got to administer discipline. You've got to set him aside for a bit. Again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But treat him as a brother. So obviously, different circumstances call for different ways of dealing with the individual under discipline. It's one of the reasons, again, we must seek the Lord begging for his wisdom in our dealings with one another within, the, within his covenant community. Church discipline usually follows an established pattern. But in the case of the man living with his stepmother, Paul skips right to the end of the process. He calls for the church to put him out. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he just goes to the end game and says, Okay, done. I'm not sure. Maybe because the sin exhibited such blatant disregard for Scripture. And the name of Christ and holiness. So that Paul was compelled to say, root it out. Get it out now. That's the sense we get in the next part of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may... Be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Likely this was a good possibility that Paul was writing close to Passover. Maybe he knew about time the, the letter would get there. It would be time to celebrate, really, Easter more so than Passover. A lot of scholars think this is the uh, introduction of an Easter kind of a festival. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul was deeply concerned about the purity of the body. So when he writes, he's saying, you know how it is at Passover, you get all of the uh, leaven out of the house. 
There, there can be no fermented dough in the house because of its tendency to take over the entire loaf of bread. And so the church cannot allow sin to affect the body because can't you see that when you allow sin to go unrepented of, unchecked, egregious public sin, and you accept it as normal life for believers, then it will spread to the entire body. I heard someone say recently, a good way to determine whether or not the person you're dating is a person you should marry is to, is to say, that, how do you feel about the person? How do you feel about his or her habits, the little things that you're... I mean, if you say, oh, you know, there are things that I enjoy, but I just... Oh, there are some things that I just can't stand. Well, you're going to be that if you marry that person. You become like each other. I say things like Allison. She says things like me. And it's a weird accent sometimes at our house. It's just strange. If you're on Facebook, you may have seen it the other night. I would have dressed up a little if I'd known I was going to be viral. Perhaps I should say go viral, not be viral. It's not that believers are to disassociate with unbelievers in the world. But they were to take care of their own house. You remember that when you were a kid, don't you? Well, my friend Bill Owen gets to stay out late. Well, let's see. Is your last name Owen? I think it's Tally. Um, You worry about the Tally house, not the Owen house. That's what Paul is saying. You take care of this house. You can't control what goes on outside this house, but you can have a say about what goes on in this house. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need... To go out of the world. That's a remarkable verse, isn't it? Somebody's cheating other people out of money in the church. Put them out. Don't have anything to do with them. If if they're unrepentant. Again, we'll get to the process in a minute. But, But he's saying associate with swindlers. And idolaters. Who are outside of the body. But now, verse 11. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Decent possibility what he's saying is don't eat at this table with such a one because this is what draws us together as a family this signifies as much as anything we do we are a family that belong to one another and we belong to Jesus so i wonder what paul really thought about the behavior of the people in the church i mean actually he goes beyond talking about evil behavior to say that the church is to purge the evil person from among them the evil person that he expects to be saved in the last day. This is serious 
business. <clears throat> Remember, the church was in, was in Corinth. Temple prostitutes flooded the streets at night. Homosexuality was widely accepted and practiced in the ancient world. And Paul listed both behaviors in the next chapter in a list of sins that included adultery, idolatry, greed, some of these same ones, and drunkenness. Although he addressed the people, really, rather than the behaviors. And he said, those who continually practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what's interesting about the list of sins in 1 Corinthians 6? You see it in Galatians 5. You see it in other places too. Seems like Paul is saying, in fact, there's real good reason to understand Paul saying, you used to act like this before you were a Christian. You're a Christian now. Christians don't act this way. But I know you're Christians and you're still acting this way. Quit acting this way. He's essentially saying over and over, stop it. You don't, you belong to Jesus. Don't be this way. Don't you know those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? So Paul didn't call for church discipline across the board. But in the case of this egregious, public, arrogant, unrepentant sinner who was a saint and wanted to act as if everything was just fine, Paul called for decisive action. Do something about this. This person was not someone struggling with sin. The struggle was over. It's just, hey, I can live any way I want and everything is okay. How dare you judge me? Don't you know that Jesus said, judge not so that you will not be judged? Any way you cut it, church discipline, it's not an easy subject. It's difficult to understand Fully, if, it would be much easier if God said, okay, here, here they are, steps. One, two, three, four, five. Nobody can make points like Americans can. One, two, three, four, five. We love them. Seven ways to this. Five ways to that. God doesn't give it to us always like that. He gave it to us in the Ten Commandments, and we want everything to be like that. But it's just not. You know why? Because for one reason, we can't keep the law. The law will never empower us to live in the way that God has called us to live. It can only give us the standard and condemn. It is beyond a set of points. God deals with us by the truth of His Word and according to the the leadership of the Holy Spirit, although we can horribly abuse the leadership of the Spirit if we're not careful. So, I want to close our time by listing ten principles about church discipline. Ten, if you can believe it. And that's far from all that we could say. I'm going to comment a bit, especially on these first two, but then we'll move fairly quickly. So, if, you, if you're the one who takes notes, write quickly after these first two. The first thing we need to acknowledge is that church is not a club. It's a family. Started off talking about football. Every year, somebody's kicked off the team, never again to be allowed to come back. Sometimes they're suspended, but there's hope for them coming back. Look, church doesn't work that way. We are a family. God has called us to 
seek the reconciliation of the wayward individual. Um, it's just like any family. Look, we put up with a lot, don't we, in our own families. You may say, oh, oh, I'm not looking forward to Thanksgiving because so-and-so is going to, eh, you know how it is. It's just on and on and on about this. But at some point, sometimes things get so bad that you have to say, look, if you don't change your ways, you cannot be a part of the family functions. In the church family, the point is that we want to help one another live in such a way that Christ is increasingly evident in our lives. So furthermore, church discipline is a process. And it's a serious business. For Paul to charge the Corinthian church to put the evil person out of the church meant that he intentionally skipped the process that Jesus had put in place. Everywhere else you see Paul talking about church discipline, he's very much aware of the process. In Galatians 6.1, he calls for patience and humility. We'll read that verse later. In Titus 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, a process has been followed before exercising church discipline. Even the public discipline of an elder in 1 Timothy 5 is for one who persists in sin. So it's not just, you know, you do something really stupid. Oh, we're calling you up here. We're going to church you. We're going to bring discipline on you. Any more than you disown somebody in the family when they've made a mistake or when they have committed a sin. But we would say oftentimes, oh, you made a mistake. Don't do that again. Don't make that same mistake again. So 1 Corinthians 5 describes an extreme case. But what is the typical process? Well, you know it. It's in Matthew chapter 18. So let's, let's read these verses. Again, there's so much more here than we have time to say. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector or as an unbeliever. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am I among them. By the way, just to point out, as I, actually I have several times when we're talking about interpreting Scripture, where two or three are gathered in my name, what he was specifically talking about was when they were gathered in court to, to, to pass sentence on a wayward sinner. You can apply it for prayer, but you can't say, look, let's just go down to the lake on Sunday morning. Two or three of us will be together. We'll pray. The Lord will be there. That's a misuse of that scripture. You can say God shows up in power when people are gathered. Yes, that's a, good, that's a legit application. But he's talking about the church being gathered. I think we understand this process. I mean, even though Jesus refers to one member who sins against another, we could see this 
like when someone's cheating someone else in a business deal, something like that. This is the best pattern we have in the New Testament, and it's a great pattern for handling church discipline, for dealing with sinful behavior in the family. We involve as few people as necessary. We try to keep it private, but, but we will do what we need to do. Here's the really scary thing about this passage in this section. Look at verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The Greek is a little bit awkward, and you really don't translate this the way that the Greek reads. That's, the translators don't because it's so awkward. But essentially what he's saying is whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. So in other words, the church is carrying out God's will in this matter. So what does that do to the idea of you don't like the way I live? They won't mind down the road. Someone said that when the when the automobile came in, church discipline went out because we can get in the car and just go down to another church. You know what? We can act like that, but God doesn't see it like that. When our church says, brother, sister, this is wrong. You know it's wrong. And it's serious enough that we need to deal with it. I think Grace Community Church, I believe Jim and Ted, some of you guys, there was one incident before I got here. We've never had a public church discipline issue here. We've been close. But we've never had it done publicly. When the entire church says, but, but let me just tell you, I, I'm not trying to prepare you that, hey, that's coming down the road. But we are really missing God's design if we say, ah, I just don't anticipate that. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But if you can just wave that off and say, a legalistic bunch of judgmental bunch of... God's not waving it off. Serious business. And to conduct church discipline is a weighty responsibility not to be taken lightly. Like I said, the elders take the lead. So we are going to be soon presenting a slate of elders. If you want to get in, you know, while the getting in's good. I'm just, just kidding. It's not fun. I can tell you that. It's not fun taking our responsibility seriously about some of these things, especially knowing, like Ricky said, we have the same natures. We're no different from anybody else. Life is a struggle. And this is not something you just walk around judging. God says, be very careful about that, but take it seriously. Take your responsibility seriously. It's important to remember, though, as we're thinking about this, these things, that much in family life, does not rise to the level of church discipline. Over and over in the New Testament, we see the church families just like all families. People mess up, and they fight, and they make up, and you know, and there's just tension, and then you get, but you live with tension for a while, you get past it. First Peter four eight says, "Love one another earnestly, because love covers a multitude." Of sins, and we do that. We just put up with things with one another, right? That's that's the love of Christ coming out. 
But it's not always an option as stated in the next principle. Some behaviors do rise to the level of church discipline. And scripture doesn't provide an exhaustive list, making it a bit tricky. It's just like spiritual gifts. You got a little list here, you got a little list there. And and you think, you know, I don't think you just pull all of these together and say, this is all the spiritual gifts that God gives through the Holy Spirit. No, there are, there are different ways that we serve God. And, and he doesn't give us an exhaustive list about, okay, this, 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 and this qualifies. And sure enough, somebody will then say, well, what about this? I mean, look, we're creative. We're, I'm, I'm certain the human nature is the same it was in the first century. But we have creative ways to sin now that, that weren't available to us in the first century. Um, so... Uh, We've got to be careful as we go forward, but we've got to also say, well, wait a minute. You're making a big deal out of this, and Scripture doesn't say it anywhere. This is not an exhaustive list. Making it all the more crucial to seek the Lord's heart on such a serious matter. Next, sin should be dealt with. Again, we've already talked about this as privately as possible, but when the sin is public, it requires public action. Um, look, you get that sense from Matthew 18, and it's not a matter of looking for an opportunity to embarrass someone who is struggling, just like the rest of us, to keep his or her head above <coughs> the spiritual waters of the Christian life. But when a sin is public, it needs to be handled publicly. Even so, be careful. Church discipline should always be administered in humility and with great care. Galatians 6.1 says it best. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. I cannot tell you how... Tragic and yet almost amusing it is at the same time to hear some Christians judge the sin of other Christians when they are guilty in a public, clearly forbidden behavior and wanting to act like this is no big deal. That is a big deal. And as far as I can tell, this is a much bigger deal than that deal over there. We always need to be careful and consider ourselves when we are bringing discipline on anybody. Uh, Seven, restoration is always the desired result of church discipline, but it's not the only purpose. The purity of the body is at stake. That was Paul's point when he said, root out the leaven. I mean, you want to see the sinner restored. But the church is Jesus' body. We are Jesus' body. And we cannot allow this body to to bring shame and reproach to the name. Look, we want to glorify God. God is going to always Get his glory. It's a wonderful thing, though, to be able to participate in that. And, and we do that by, by dealing with sin that is clearly in the face 
of what Scripture says we ought to look like. Since the whole body is affected, get out the leaven. The entire body is affected. Therefore, any decision to remove someone from membership roles and the decision to refuse to serve them communion, even if they are allowed to attend, has to be an entire church family decision. Whole family has to say it. So don't think, man, I'm glad our elders are handling that. Look, if it comes to that, you've got to make a decision. And we haven't talked about it at this level. These are things we'll have to talk about as elders. But it may be this kind of decision. Who says yes? Because the body has to take the stand. That's part of the next principle. In fact, it is the next principle. The entire body is to participate in church discipline when excommunication of a member is required. Do the elders take the lead in this? Absolutely. Do they have the biblical authority to remove someone from membership roles and to say, I'm sorry, we cannot serve you communion? I don't really see it in Scripture. It has to be the entire body agreeing that this is the way it has to be. Our constitution automatically removes people who no longer attend church. But church discipline, again, is that entire family decision. But even with such a serious matter before us, we must always remember, number nine, that grace and forgiveness flow continually from the loving heart of God to His children through Christ. None of us can be made right With the Lord by keeping the law. Are there biblically based behavioral expectations for church members? Absolutely. But none of us are ever going. None of us will ever achieve perfection in this life. There's no hope of that. But and, and, And we're grateful that our God is a gracious forgiving God. We all need grace and mercy. Church discipline is required, though, of a church that is following Jesus' lead. The elders are not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of this church. The elders serve Jesus and follow Him. And if this church as a whole is going to follow Jesus, we must make church discipline a part of our DNA. Not that we're looking, but when we must, we do it. That leads to our last point, which is preparation for partaking of the Lord's Supper. Participation at the Lord's table in communion is an indication of a repentant spirit. A person who is seeking and accepting forgiveness from the Lord. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses that began the uh, Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, said this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent... He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We need to be repenting day in and day out. As we gather at this table to take the bread 
And the fruit of the vine, we acknowledge it's, what, it's Jesus' death that saves us, that we are incapable of saving ourselves, that if he did, <coughs> he did not die for us and, and wash our sins away when we repent and believe, then we would have no hope. Our good works can never be good enough. Because of the scriptural warning, the biblical warning about taking this table seriously, as we see later in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, some of you are very likely reluctant to come because maybe of certain teaching that you have heard as you were growing up. But this is, this is the place that we are assured of God's forgiveness right here. If you have sinned like we all sin, repent, ask God for forgiveness, and come and receive forgiveness freely as God willingly pours out His forgiveness on us. If you are living in open and unrepentant sin, we cannot serve you because it would be dangerous for you. Do you really believe Scripture? If you do, then you really believe that God makes people sick and kills them. For living in open, unrepentant sin and acting as if everything is just hunky-dory. You may be saying, oh, I'm living in private sin. Look, if you're unwilling to give it up, if you're unwilling to give up that sin, I would suggest that you not partake today if you believe Scripture. But that's not most of you and hardly any of you. You're struggling just like everybody else. You blew it. Yes, say, God, I... Your word has found me out. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm so grateful for the forgiveness that is given to us in Jesus. And so when you come and you participate, you say that I believe Jesus forgives me. Be nourished at this table and find strength to live holy lives. Let's pray. Lord, um, I'm just going to confess this was no fun today. What is fun is to proclaim the gospel that says our sins are forgiven. What is fun is to know that you loved us so much that you made provision for our inclusion into the family by the death of your son when he took our sins upon himself. Lord, as we come to this table, we come sorrowfully because of our sins. We come with great joy and celebration because you have brought us into the family of God through Christ and his sacrifice for us. And we come with great anticipation, acknowledging the Lord's return. And when we think about Jesus' return, we want our lives to reflect and radiate the love and the holiness of Jesus. We have no hope of doing that on our own. So, Lord, Jesus, live through us. Holy Spirit, make us understand your, the word that you wrote <clears throat> and to live according to the Father's plan. We bless your name as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word is written by the author of Hebrews. Under the
inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said,